dear church family, it's time. Or maybe I should say it was time. Time to take down your Christmas decorations. Anyone do that? Full transparency, we still have two Christmas trees in our house up right now. We even put the lights on at night. We don't care. Uh, but we did take down the outside lights, and uh, this year uh, I tried to do my best Clark Griswold, and I tried to bring the best. And I didn't know what to do with an old semi-burnt-out string of lights, and I had this great idea to confess my faith and to make a Jesus sign. You want to see it? Are you ready? Are you ready for the reveal? Ta-da! Here's what I did with the big bulbs. I got some plywood, and I made officially a Jesus sign. Now, kids, young kids, this isn't a foreign language. We call this cursive. <laughs> some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, and and I, I did my best to, to again, share my faith and, and, and be a good steward of a semi-burnt-out string of lights. And, and here is Jesus. But I don't know what you see when you look at the sign. Every time I look at it, you know what I see? These holes. And these holes, they remind me that this wasn't my first attempt to make a Jesus sign. This was actually the second attempt. In fact, my first attempt was so futile that I had to start over. See, I had envisioned that Jesus was going to look good in big block letters, but they were too spread out that you couldn't read anything about it, so I had to go back and try it again. And really, every time I drove by the house, I was thinking, can they really see those holes? Because in there was this thought that maybe my neighbors will look down on me for not even being able to make a good Jesus sign. In me is this thought that maybe I shouldn't even have it up because of how it speaks about our household. Or maybe as a Christ follower that I'm just not a bright light because I don't even know how to do a sign right. Hi, I'm Dustin and I struggle with perfectionism. <laughs> what about you? You ever been there? You ever have a project and, and you're like, I'm not even sure I want to start on this project because I don't know if I have enough time to make it what it is, right? It's, if, if it's not going to be perfect, let's just do it all. Or maybe for you it's this idea that when you make a mistake, it's not just a milestone along the way of progress, but for you it, it shows off a character flaw, that there's something deeply wrong in you that you couldn't get it all right. You know, as we get into the landscape, I was doing some study of the different type of perfectionists that exist. And, and so let's go through just a few of them. Um, one of them is a self-oriented perfectionist. And if you're this person, you are setting unrealistically high standards for yourself. And key on that, that, that phrase, unrealistic, it was helpful for me to, to think about it from a golf standpoint. If you play the game of golf, what is a perfect shot? Hole in one. Now, if I set out to be a perfect golfer tomorrow, is that going to happen? I'm going to shoot 18. No. Uh, but, but that's what a perfectionist is dealing with. They're dealing with the unrealistic expectations. And if they're coming from self, again, you might not want to start anything that you can't perfect. Um, you might be a procrastinator as well as a perfectionist because of that. And, and that's just one type. Uh, another one is the externally, externally oriented perfectionist. What this means is that when it comes to your relationship with other people, you think that everyone is looking at you and saying, you better be perfect. You better get it all right. You, you, you might think mom or dad thinks, well, I, I can't get anything less than an A. Uh, our team better win. And, and, and so you're driven by the expectations of others. And someone dealing with this might deal with despair or depression because they're living in a world where they're convinced they're just not enough. 
they're just not enough. I'm trying, but I can't live up to others' expectations. Uh, There's a final one, Uh, the others-oriented perfectionist. Now, this person is a hypocrite because what they do is the unrealistic expectations that they cannot meet, they apply to other people. And so they live life, and maybe at a boss this way, uh, where they don't do it well, but they expect you to do it well, right? And they have very little empathy, and they have very little patience, because that's just the demand they put on other people as, as they walk around. Now, I, I think th- there's so much help in, in talking about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're in week two called uh, Chasing the Carrot. And, and I think there, there's so much help because... It seems like the carrot of perfectionism has a lot to offer. That that if you could attain it, then maybe no one could say an ill word about you. That that if you could attain perfection, you wouldn't have to live with judgment or shame. That that finally you could be considered worthy. You know, I was learning more about this uh, through the lens of uh, someone called Brene Brown. Have you heard of her? Dr. Brene Brown was with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday. DVR it, by the way. It's so much better to be in church than, anyway, um, my soapbox. Um, But but talking on Super Soul Sunday about perfectionism, um, and Dr. Brene Brown said this, it's a belief that if we live perfect, look perfect, and act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. That if I can be perfect, if if my face has no blemishes, if my house has no cobwebs, if my stomach has a six-pack, and if my kids are always well-behaved, well, then maybe no one will have an ill word to say about me. And at its core, it's about the idea of what makes us worthy. That if you're taking notes, perfectionism is a quest for worthiness. To know that I measure up. Because the fear is that if someone sees me imperfect, if someone sees me not for what I'm trying to put off, but for the imperfect person I am, then I won't be enough for them or anyone else and maybe not myself. And so we live in a world where some of the most talented, some of the most intelligent, some of the most humorous, uh, some of the best of the best, they're doing this all because internally they're chasing this carrot and they really want to finally be accepted and finally be called worthy and finally be loved. Can you relate? And that's why I love gathering in this place and putting a spiritual lens on things. And I want to welcome you, if you're watching online, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're just joining us for the first time, welcome to the family. But what I love about being in this place is that into this dynamic, God's word speaks very powerfully and boldly and shows us a different way. That into this dynamic, God has a word to share with us. And it's so important because there's another type of perfectionist. There's the God-oriented perfectionist. The spirituality that says, in order for God to call me worthy, accepted, and loved, I better perform well. I better be a really good person. I better be generous and volunteer and, and be a good neighbor. In fact, sometimes when you look at the landscape of spirituality, the reason you find such loving people and kind people and good people is because they're chasing the carrot of God-oriented perfection. That was the case of the Pharisees. There's a whole group of people at Jesus' time chasing the carrot, and people could look in on them and say, wow, that was spotless, they were blameless, they were good people. 
because their status with God depended on it. But into this, God speaks. And he invites us off of the hamster wheel. In fact, we're going to look at the book of Romans. And and when it comes to this book, if you ever want to see the futility of perfectionism and the glory of redemption in Jesus Christ, it is Romans. And in our first lesson, we heard this verse that is completely different. God told us no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Can I interpret it a little bit? Uh, I, I don't think I'm playing fast and loose, but here's my illustration. No one will be thought worthy in God's sight by performing perfectly. No, through striving for perfection, we only see our imperfections. In fact, I grew up uh, in the Lutheran background. It's okay if you didn't do that, by the way. Uh, but the way Luther would refer to this is the law is a mirror. And, and what does a mirror do? You wake up in the morning and you see the mirror, and, and the mirror, at least for me, points out sunspots and a lot of hair. <laughs> points out the blemishes that I have and my lip that got hurt during wrestling, so it kind of bulges out, right? What, what does a mirror do? It tells me everything that's wrong, Right? And so when we look at God's law, you know what it does? It shows you everything that is wrong with you. And some of you might know the Ten Commandments, but if you just go through them, uh, on every level we could say, wow, I'm wrong. First commandment, love God above everything. Let nothing else get in the way of your relationship with him. Yep, wrong. Never misuse his name. Wrong. Remember the Sabbath day, which has to do with just hearing the word and always wanting to hear the word. Wrong. And so perfect is impossible. And we're going to get into uh, Paul's wrestling match spiritually. And Paul's going to be very transparent of what it's like to live as a Christian with both the Holy Spirit living in him, uh, good desires, and also the sinful nature living in him, bad desires. So we're in Romans chapter 7. Would it be okay if you just stand in honor of the word of God? So we're going to stand as we hear this section, and and then we're going to dig into it. So this is God speaking through the words of Paul. Paul said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, can you say this word, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God that though imperfect people, we have deliverance through Jesus. Could you turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm ready? I'm ready? And I'm ready to be rescued. I'm ready to be rescued. Please be seated. Have I told you it's good to see you? It is just fun gathering. Thanks for being here. 
You know, as we continue this discussion, I want to draw you back to the 80s uh, to a NCAA collegiate athlete named Kathy Ormsby. Here she is. Uh, she went to the University of North Carolina, and she was a very good runner in the 10,000-meter race. In fact, she set women's records at the time. A little bit more about Kathy is that when she went to high school, she was valedictorian. She had a 99% grade point average. Uh, she was very smart even in college as a pre-med student, doing winsome and doing very well. But things took a turn for Kathy. In, in one race in the 1980s, um, she was trailing in her event in the 10,000 meter. At 6,400 meters, she was not in first place. Rather, she was in fourth place. And, and I think she could see what was coming. She wasn't going to win. And because of this, she did something drastic. While everyone else was racing in the circle in the stadium, what she does was she kept stride and she raced out of the stadium, raced across a softball field, raced to a bridge, and jumped off that bridge, fell 35 feet. Now, some say it was an attempt for suicide. She didn't die, but she was paralyzed from the waist down. Now, people wonder, why did Kathy Ormsby do this? Why someone so bright and talented would just choose to jump off because she was losing a race? Well, some have some conjecture. Uh, her high school coach said this about her demeanor when it comes to races and finishing first. The high school coach said if she didn't come in first, she had the tendency to think she was letting a lot of other people down. Winning was, winning was not just for herself. I wonder if Kathy had experiences like we had where at one point you were really popular and then you weren't. At one pe point people really loved you and then they didn't. At one point, they really valued what you did, and then you didn't perform as well. And maybe she was at one point, again, fourth place, and she just couldn't handle the value level going down. Because here's the reality, for whatever reason that she did it. We live in a world that uses us for our performance. Here's the world that we live in. Culture will use people for how they provide or how they perform. That's just the standard of our age. Let me give you exhibit A. Remember this guy? How many Stanley Cups? Three in less than a decade, right? And a couple losing seasons and you're yesterday's lunch, right? Same could be said of Coach Madden. This is the world we live in. It's for every child who comes home and when they get an A, that's placed promptly on the fridge. And when they get a C, they get a reprimand. It's for every employee going to a job where the carrot of your job or, or maybe um, a promotion is hung before you if you perform well enough, but it can also be taken away if you don't. This is the world that we live in. We use people for what we want them to provide. What if God did that? Can you imagine? As we turn our lens to Scripture, Paul is talking about how excellent he's performing. And, and let me show you how excellent he's performing. He said, the good I want to do, I don't do it. But the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. And so if God were to show up to Paul and say, wow, you know, I'm going to award you based on your performance, he would get no award, right? And, and in fact, Paul, different than many Americans in our culture, he's willing to admit he's like a bad person. And at this point, what's really crazy is that he's not that bad of a person. 
He's the super evangelist. No one will evangelize as much as Paul in the first century. He's a really good person of the faith, someone you should imitate his faith life as. And yet he's still willing to say, you know me, I'm I'm the worst of sinners. Yep, no no one's worse than me. And he's willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm a wretched individual. And maybe it's this, this admission that that we sink to our own souls that will lead us off the hamster wheel. Because until we get to the point where Paul is in sober reflection, I'm not sure we get the beauty of Jesus Christ. To say it a little bit differently, uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle said, until we first see ourselves sinners, we won't see our need for a Savior. So what are you and what am I? I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together, and I never did, and I never will. But can I give you a word if you're there? Here's the word. But apart from the law, apart from all your striving and all your straining, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is not earned. It is not performed for. It is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the glorious gospel is this, that God loves us and calls us worthy based on the performance of Jesus Christ. In fact, when it comes to all of your sins and all of your bad, you know what it's like? It's like adding black velvet and then you place a diamond on top of it. You might have some very black, black velvet, but it just makes the jewel, the diamond of God's good news shine all the more brighter in all of its different facets. Because the reality is we needed this gospel. That if this wasn't the case, if status with God wasn't on Jesus, then we didn't have to celebrate Christmas at all. If I could have been good enough, let's not sing the songs or put up the lights. Let's not give gifts if the gift wasn't given. Christmas wasn't necessary if I could do it. More than that, the cross wasn't necessary. Why does Jesus have to be betrayed? Why does he have to go through the emotional agony of being forsaken by the Father? And why does he have to be tortured to the point of death if I or you could save ourselves? But the reality is we couldn't and we didn't. But he did. And so today, whether you had a glorious week in Christ or a horrible week, you still have the right to hear, you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God because of Jesus Christ. Your standing is secure because of what he did for you, regardless of the right, wrong, and in between. We stand in grace through faith simply by believing. We receive his perfection in place of our imperfections, which he paid for on the cross. And if you're new to Christianity, this is the gospel that we build upon. This is the reason that we're here. But what I realize is that some of you have heard this message, yes? It's good to hear it again, though. So what I also realize is that though you've just heard this, you might need some help in how this gets you off the hamster wheel. We need to sink it maybe a little bit deeper so that you hop off the wheel. In fact, you turn to the neighbor and just tell him, hop off the wheel. Hop off the wheel. See, in another way of looking at it, when it comes to spirituality, let's say it's, it's the need for rescue. 
Let's just look at it from this standpoint, a different facet of the diamond. Let's say you're in water and you don't know how to swim. Um, so, so here it is. You don't know how to swim and you're in water. Now, if that's the case, you don't know how to swim, does it matter if this is 10 feet deep or 100 feet deep? Make any difference if you don't know how to swim? Does it matter if you make your situation a little bit better or a little bit worse but still don't know how to swim? Let's say you flail and you bob and you're getting a little closer, still not at the surface. Or let's say you flail and you bob and you're just sinking more and more down into the water. Does it matter your effort? No, it doesn't. The only real reality is that you need rescue, right? If you can't swim and you're in water, you need to be rescued. And that's where Paul put his emphasis on. See, Paul, he could have been hung up here. He could have been hung up, what a wretched man I am. And, and he could have just ended it, right? And he'd be really depressed. But where does he lead us to? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's shifting his focus. His focus is not on how good or bad he is. His focus is on the fact that God rescued him when he couldn't swim. Now, at this point in Paul's life, the water isn't that deep. He's a good person. It's maybe 10 feet. And at this point, he's bobbing and he's flailing, and he's getting close to perfect, but he's still not swimming. But it doesn't take away from the fact that he still, on his best day, needed rescue. How does this help us off the hamster wheel? Here it is. When we focus on being rescued, we de-emphasize our performance. Good or bad. That's not why you're rescued. Here's what it means if you've been in Christ for a while. So let me talk to my church people. Church people, I love you. I love that you strive hard for the Lord. But there's a problem when you strive hard for the Lord. Can, can I just let you know that? If you wake up each day and you're trying to be on point and on mission, and you're waking up each day, man, I'm going to be a good father, I'm going to be a good worker, and I'm going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to pray for people, and I invited someone to amazing love. Isn't that awesome? And I'm going to volunteer. And we do, and we do, and we do, and we do. You ever been there? That's really good stuff, but you know what can happen? We start thinking then that God approves of us based on our performance. Because if we're honest, we've bobbed and flailed and we've gotten close to the surface sometimes. We've done some really good things. And now we're tricked into thinking that he loves me because of something I did. In fact, that's the story of the prodigal son. There is the older brother in the story of the prodigal. And the older brother has always stayed with the father, has always tried to do the right thing. And look at what the other older brother uh, told the father. He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Now, what child can ever say that? What employee can ever say that? I've never disobeyed. But what is he giving us evidence of? That if you've been in Christ for a while and you know what it is to perform and to try to be thankful and a really good person, at one point or other, you might mistake the reality that even on your best day, you still needed rescue. Even on your best day, you still weren't floating above the water called perfection. You still needed Jesus' perfection credited to your account even on that best day. But this cuts beautifully the other way. Because for some of you, perfection isn't the problem, it's despair. For some of you, no one needs to tell you that the water is deep and that you've made it worse. You know that when it comes to spiritual, you somehow found a net while you were sinking and, and rocks were tied to it, and you're just, like, it's bad. 
And it reminds me of the prodigal. Remember when it got so bad for him? All he wanted in a cruel world was some help from the father. All he wanted, you don't have to call me a, a, a son. All I want to be is a servant. Please just help me out. And, 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 and what, what happened? He realized that as, as bad as he'd made it, God's grace went deeper still. As far as sin sank him, grace was enough to pick him up and to set him on firm ground. And the father said, come, kill the fattened calf, bring a ring, put shoes on his feet. This is my son. Isn't it glorious, this reality? If it's not based on our performance, we get to de-emphasize both good and bad. If you had a really great work week of service to the Lord, that's awesome. Way to go. You still needed a Savior. If you had a miserable, dreadful week and you are just so embarrassed and so in despair, welcome. You have a Savior who lifted you up and set you on dry ground because that's what he does. And one of the reasons this is so beautiful is because we live in a world where there's a dichotomy between the version of me that I give off and the version of me I actually am. Do you know what I'm talking about? That we are professional actors, at least most of us. And there is a version of the world that I give myself at work. And there's a version of, of myself that I give to my family. And there's a version of myself that I give to my friends, right? And some of us are so good at acting, and we faked it till we made it. And, and, and we've realized this from the world, that, that we're afraid of, of who we actually are. And we're afraid to actually be our real selves in relationship with someone else because maybe it won't be enough. But you know what the gospel says? The gospel says you couldn't hide. The gospel says, well, you could fake out everyone. I saw the raw you, and I looked at you in the midst of your despair and your darkness, and I still said, that's the one. That son, that dog, oh, they're, they're beautiful. That's the one I want for me for all of time. And the God you cannot fake out has still chosen you to be loved forever because of Jesus Christ. Man, I hope you could just hop off the hamster wheel. Be the raw you and know that that raw you is loved by God. And that's the only voice that matters, even if every other voice doesn't like it. If this is all about worthiness, then I need to tell you your true worth. Do we still got time? I feel like this is going to be a long sermon, by the way. <laughs> Just, like, dig in a little bit. Um, so if this is really about worthiness, can, can I just describe your, your worth? See, see, something is as valuable as what someone else is willing to pay for it. I, I consider paintings, and, and we saw some Andy Warhol this past year at the Art Institute, and um, this was an Andy Warhol of a, a silver car that got in a crash. And you know what someone paid for this? $105 million. And to be honest, sometimes you ever look at an artist and get real judgy? Like, I'm judgy on this. Like, I could have done that. It's just a copy. Modified. Sorry, I'm just I'm kidding. Hubris. Anyway. How much did God pay for you? Auction block. Was it $105 million? Yeah, Jesus wishes that were the case. No, a father said, you know what you're worth? You're worth me trading my one and only son so that you could be called son and daughter. 
And you know what the son said? The son said, you know, you're worth, you're worth my suffering and my death so that you could be saved and released. And, and so if at the core of this is a worthiness quest, you need to know that your worth is priceless as determined by the price God paid. There's nothing more valuable. And, and here again you see that in the world we live in, no one loves you better than God and no one has valued you more than God. And what could this do to us? Maybe it could give us some freedom. I think we need some freedom. I was in forensics this past year, and I saw a young gal giving a speech. And, and this young gal, and I'm, I'm, I'm a speech giver, you know, got into everyone's worst nightmare. They forgot a line. And if they forgot a line, they, they, they messed up the next line. And then said, you know, can I start over? And then they realized they're not going to get a perfect score. And then the tears came. And the kind of tears where you couldn't speak through the tears. And so you had a whole group of people, right, and, and, and this, this young gal just collapsing because she knows she didn't perform well. Do you know what I wish I could have told this young, young gal and got through to her better than I think I did? That, that she had the right to be loved even in the midst of this. She had the right to be known. You're still valuable. You're still worthwhile regardless of how well you did. You can be loved in the midst of your letdown. Or letting others down. But what I find is really interesting is that maybe if you would do this for this gal, right? If you were in this situation, you saw a grade school gal, you know, combusting, you'd probably give grace to and maybe even a hug. Let me ask you the next one. Why don't you do that for yourself? Why are you so quick to grace for other people and not so gracious for yourself? Today's an opportunity to change that to hop off the hamster wheel and say, the same grace I give to others, I'm going to start with in myself, and that's how we're going to do it. But there's a final thing that I wanted to share with you, and it's, it's how I think the world could be better. Do you know how I said how culture kind of uses people for what they provide and how they perform? What if we did it kind of like God does it? What if we made a commitment this week to stop using people for what they can provide and just start loving them for who they are as determined by God? What if it was for every father and mother who try to do this, but legitimately, whether that child did really well or really bad, you're still going to discipline them. They, they knew, that child knew your love did not wax or wane an iota. That you are still going to love them. Even again if you discipline them. But anyway. What, what if that was true for every married couple? Every married couple that, that believes in the vows, richer or poor, better or worse, sickness and health, and, and, and really goes back and says, I, I know you might not even be able to provide anything for me right now, but I love you because God loves you and that's enough for me. And that's what I'm going to do. What if this transcended to business and politics? What, what if a businessman, a salesman, went into a, a meeting with someone and said, well, you don't need it, I won't sell it to you. And a mortgage banker uh, sat down with a couple and really let them know how this was going to affect them financially rather than uh, being affected by their commission. What if this transcended into the world we live in? I think young people would be released from a lot of pressures they're feeling. I think this kind of grease could help all the relationships we walk in. And maybe more and more would hop off the hamster wheel because they found us off of it. May God let it be. And now let's close with prayer, asking him to help to do this. So Heavenly Father, your love is indescribable. When I offered you nothing and performed nothing, you gave everything.
I thank you for Jesus and his incredible work for me. I thank you for his rescue because I needed it. Help me to live this day in the peace of your stable love and grant the heart that gives such grace to others. I want to do this out of thanks to remind myself of your love and to give you glory, but release others from the pressure of perfection so that they may rest in unconditional love. In Jesus' name, amen.